Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming out tonight to sit together for a little while. I know that I'm the <clears throat> I'm the focal point of this evening's presentation, but I would like to invite you right away to um, begin to turn your attention actually inwards to yourself, if you could. And if we could begin by practicing a little bit together to, to do what we call um, coming home to ourselves. Come home to ourselves. So much of our day, every day, is spent moving out into the world, getting things done, maintaining relationships, fulfilling obligations. Sometimes there's a lot of stress and pressure in all of that. So that pouring of ourselves out into the world. In this moment, uh, I'd like to invite us to begin our evening by returning. You might notice your breathing. And if you can bring your awareness into your breathing, it's like walking through a doorway into the here and now. Our breath is never in the past, it's never in the future, it's always right now, whether it's in-breath or out-breath. Our breath is never somewhere far away from us either, it's right in the very heart of our being. Breathing in, I'm aware that I'm breathing in. And breathing out, I'm aware that I'm breathing out. As my mind and my breathing and my body all begin to come together, I begin to experience being present. When I breathe in, I feel as though I'm gathering myself inwards. Along with the air coming into my body, my awareness comes into this space, this body. And from all the places where my attention has been outwardly now, it, it, it comes in, begins to fill the space of my body. Breathing in, I'm gathering myself in. And as I breathe out, often I am feeling uh, kind of a release, a letting go. But my awareness stays within me, and so what falls away is everything that I don't need. And most of what I'm holding right now, I don't need. The release of any stress, the release of the whole journey it took to get here tonight, Mm, the movement, the people, the places, everything with an out-breath that can fall away. The release of projects, of work, of obligations and relationships that need tending, 
gathering myself inwards and releasing, letting go of all that I don't need in this moment. My teacher talks about this practice, coming home to ourselves, also as coming home to life. For not only are we gathering ourselves inward and becoming present for ourselves when we are present with ourselves, we are also present with each other. We are present for all of the world that's around us. In fact, for me, the only way that I can really feel connected and a part of the world that's around me is when I'm really alive in myself and I'm not carried away by stress and worry and anxiety, confusion, fear, sadness, anger. When I can collect myself inwardly and have a sense of being at home, being alive right here and now, then I feel like I can begin to experience the reality of my interrelationships with all of you and with this beautiful planet we live on together. Coming home to ourselves is coming home to life. So I'd like to uh, sing some chants to you using the sound of the bell and invite you to continue to practice, to collect yourself and release any, any layers of stress or worry or fear that are there. And see as you practice if you can invite the possibility, invite the possibility of joy invite the possibility of well-being in this moment. At this moment, present with myself and present with life, there is some joy, there is some well-being. And see, while you breathe and while we listen to the chants, if there is also a careful and kind place for your suffering too. A way to have yourself present in your heart, open in your heart, so that that possibility of joy and well-being can be there, but also a place to care for your suffering, a place to hold what doesn't feel well. When we come home to ourselves, we, we come home to what is, what is well, but also we come home to the suffering. Hold a place for both of those. And when we come home and we connect with life, we also do that. We connect with what is wonderful, what is healing, what is beautiful, and we also hold and care for the places that hurt.
Body, speech, and mind in perfect oneness. I send my heart along with the sound of the bell. May the hearers waken from forgetfulness and transcend the path of anxiety and sorrow. I listen, I listen, and this wonderful sound brings me back to my true I listen, I listen, and this wonderful sound brings me back to my true May the sound of the bell reach deeply into the cosmos, in even the darkest places, may beings hear it clearly, so that understanding lights up their hearts. They realize awakening and find their way home. I listen. Reflections begin to dissolve. My mind is calm, my body relaxed. A smile is born upon my lips. Following the sound of the bell, my breath guides me back to the safe island of mindfulness. 
and in the garden of my heart the flower of peace blooms beautifully. So, dear friends, I would like to talk with you a little bit about my experience with meeting the challenges that I face in my daily life and meeting them with practice. And we say that in the world of Meditation and mindfulness, we mean the practice of meditation and mindfulness. (laughs) We can practice many different things, but that word practice here refers to how we hold with mindfulness, with meditative reflection, uh, the situation that we are in, and practicing to do that. And there's all different levels on which we can practice, and many different things that we can practice to be in touch with. We are uh, such amazing beings. We have so many different facets, layers to our experience. So there's this uh, thing that in, in the, the world of Buddhist monks and nuns, that's called a rains retreat. A rains retreat is a retreat that evolved at the time of uh, the monsoon seasons in India. Um, So in the original communities of uh, men and women who were practicing as monks and nuns, bhikshus and bhikshunis, which really means beggars, uh, but practicing uh, the spiritual teachings of the, the man that we call the Buddha, when the monsoon season would come, they picked up a tradition that came actually from the Jains uh, of not moving around too much during the rainy season, staying in one place. And that staying in one place was known as the rains retreat. And the tradition became that you would spend three months, three lunar months, in one place once a year. And that's actually how um, 
monastics measure their age as monastics. It's the number of rains retreats that they have practiced. And uh, the word vasa in Pali or varsa in Sanskrit uh, is the word referring to the rain or rains and, and has come to be known varsa vasana or vasa vasana as the, the rains retreat. And there's a beautiful practice that's evolved in the Plum Village tradition that I lived in around the monastic uh, rains retreat where there's an opening ceremony and a closing ceremony. And the opening ceremony, I'd like to describe that to you. We sometimes call this the the face-to-face ceremony. And, And the opening ceremony... Uh, the elders of the community, uh, which would have included Thai, Thich Nhat Hanh, and the abbots and abbesses of the, the different hamlets that we lived in, uh, or if we had some visiting elders who might have come from Vietnam or Thailand or China, you know, men and women who had been in robes for you know, 30, 40 years already. Uh, these elders uh, first will come before the whole community and they take refuge in each other. Like they, they have this beautiful ceremony of prostrating, of bowing down in front of the whole community with each other, committing, making a beautiful and very sincere commitment to take refuge in each other's practice for the next three months. Then they turn around and they face the whole community and then the whole community faces them and does the same. And you make this commitment to meet face to face your community of practice, to look at them, to see them, to be with them, to live with them, over the course of these three months uh, with your highest intention and your best capacity right, to live in an awakened way together, a face-to-face ceremony. And over the course of the retreat, uh, of course, when you stay together with a large group of people practicing day in and day out together, many things happen. And some of them are very nourishing and healing things, and some of them are very challenging things. You know, there's a, uh, uh, a way in which they talk about cleaning chopsticks. Uh, when you have a whole bunch of chopsticks that are all dirty, it takes a long time to take each one of them and clean off each chopstick. So you take the whole bundle and you stick it in the water and you rub them all together and they clean each other. That's kind of like what happens in the rains retreat. Um, So then there's the closing ceremony at the end of the retreat, the Pavarana ceremony, marking the end of the rain retreat, where you conclude this aspiration. You celebrate this time of having taken refuge in each other's practice for, for three months having been face-to-face with your community in an honest and noble relationship. Right? 
And uh, each practitioner makes a commitment in that moment to listen to the feedback from any other practitioner. So even the abbots and abbesses will sit to listen, to hear how others in the community experience them, their positive qualities, their shortcomings, suggestions <laughs> for how they might uh, transform things. And this is a, actually in Plum Village, it goes much longer. This ceremony spans several weeks, actually. We call it shining light. But it spans several weeks of practice together as a community where traditionally it's you know, just one afternoon of a ceremonious kind of thing. Because we took it to heart, we really actually gave each person the chance to sit and listen to the feedback, the shining light from all the other practitioners in the community. And we were many, many, many brothers living together, many sisters living together. To practice like this takes a certain uprightness, a noble orientation within you, right? Not to be moved around by things, but to be in an upright and noble relationship with everything, with the others, but also with all this stuff inside which might come up in your interrelationships with other people. There's a kindness that it calls on in you. There's a courage that you must develop. And there's a lot of energy and a lot of confidence which is built, faith which is built in the practice, faith in the lived, lived experience of the practiced experience of, of, uh, of, of presence and kindness and compassion. It's that uprightness, that, uh, that courage, and that energy uh, which uh, uh, is so important. It feeds our life. It feeds our spiritual life. Mm. So I want to talk about how I, have, uh, I work with shaping that in my, in my life now as I don't have the Reigns retreats anymore, and I don't have a monastic community with which to commit my practice in that way anymore. And uh, I, I want to nonetheless carry forward that same uh, kind and upright uh, way of meeting, right? Meeting what it is that my life is. Uh, and not to be washed along by the currents of society or by strong emotions or stories of suffering from the past, but to be able to meet that with that, uh, that courage, that confidence, that, that faith and that energy. So first of all, I want to talk about facing the present moment. And I already introduced the way in which I want to speak more about that in the very beginning. When I invited us to, to see if we could find the possibility of joy, 
of well-being in our moment, in this moment, this present moment? How can we come face to face to meet the reality of this moment? One of the ways that I've learned so important is to be able to cultivate the ability to see conditions for well-being, conditions for happiness that are there. They are already here, alive in us and around us in every moment. But so much of the time, we don't see them. Tai Thich Nhat Hanh, he calls this, learn to celebrate your non-toothache. Right? When you have a toothache, all you think about is the suffering of your tooth, and you're really quite annoyed that the dentist isn't available for another month and a half. Right? And, and so you... <laughs> So you, you, you're aching in your mouth, and you pay a lot of attention to that pain which is in your mouth. But when you don't have a toothache, you don't even know you have teeth. <laughs> you pay no attention at all. And yet you've got all these teeth in there. They're all doing fine. That's a condition for happiness. It's a condition of well-being. Right? And why is it that we don't see it? It's because we're not looking for it. What are we looking for? We're looking for what's going wrong. Right? And uh, modern uh, psychology and neuroscience and neuropsychology, <laughs> all these things are, are showing us that actually we have a, a negativity bias in general. The average person spends five times more time and energy looking after suffering than paying attention to what is going well. Five times. Right? So if you just leave it up to habit and you don't develop that upright, noble relationship with yourself in your present moment, you're going to slide towards suffering and ill-being. That's because it's, a, it's, a, it's an inheritance, a survival instinct. There was a time when uh, it was a lot harder to live. We didn't have the kind of uh, comforts and protection uh, the built environment and the and this safe society to live in, and there still are places in the world where people don't have that. But there was a time when it, it you you had one chance to get away from a threat, from a danger, and that was it. And so we need that response. We need to pay attention to threats, to danger, to what's not going well, because we want to survive. And so, on one level, it's important that we can get some energy out of some anxiety and some fear, right? But five to one, that's a lot. And if we're not conscious of it, we slide in that direction. And we pay attention to what's not going well. We dwell on the suffering. We make a really big deal out of suffering, basically because we don't want to suffer, right? So we do a whole bunch to try to avoid it or, or get away from it or something, right? And yet, in our daily life, there are multitudes of conditions for happiness. So this way of being upright in our relationship to the present moment includes happiness. It must include happiness. And if you really stop and get in touch with yourself and really start to notice yourself in your body, in your emotions, in your mind, and in the things that you're interacting with in a moment, you will see, you will see so many conditions of happiness. Please celebrate them. 
and experience the joy of letting go of your stress and worry. It's actually quite a wonderful thing. You know, when you take an out breath and there's a little release of tension in your neck and shoulders, you try it right now. That actually feels good. <laughs> it's enjoyable. And celebrate that feeling. Celebrate it. Let yourself be, oh, right. It's nice to release stress. To release worry is a pleasant experience. And you let that grow in you. Take 20 or 30 seconds to let it grow. Become like, become like a flower receiving the sunlight in the morning. Close your eyes. Become like a flower receiving the sun. You feel yourself warmed. You feel yourself softening. You feel yourself enlivened. And you open. You blossom. How wonderful to commune so deeply with the sunlight. Right? You let that wholesomeness happen. Right? It's so important. It's so important. We can see in our body all the things that are going well and receive that input, that wellness, just like the flower receives the sun. Let yourself open to that. Let it build in you the experience of vitality and well-being. You can look into the eyes of a child as you walk by or a flower on the path. And or step out and look up at the night sky and you see that cloud wisping over the face of the moon and you say, oh, that's beautiful. And then you let it go. Or you say, oh, that's beautiful. And you stop. And you let that image in. You let that beauty in. And you let it open you to well-being, to aliveness, coming home to yourself, coming home to life. In a way, it's like coming back to life. So along with this awareness of uh, well-being, happiness, joy, along with cultivating an awareness for all the wholesome things in your daily life and really spending that time and giving yourself that 20 or 30 seconds each time to, to let it come to life in you, I'd like to add another thought. And this is a thought which has to do with uh, what we call in Plum Village the eyes of interbeing. And so although we use the expression eyes, what we're really talking about is a way of seeing, a way of perceiving, of looking into, often with thinking, with our thinking, looking into the world in a particular way. Because you can use your thinking to go in different directions. And again, if you just let thinking go wherever it wants, where is it going to go? generally towards problem-solving around everything that's going wrong, right? Uh, whether that's to really get through something or to get away from it. But if you take your thinking in your upright, noble, kind, mindfulness sort of way, if you take your thinking and you uh, guide it a little bit, give it some intentionality, you can bring yourself down a very wholesome road to notice conditions of happiness, but also to notice through eyes of interbeing 
how deeply connected you are with that world that you're now perceiving. So let's take an example. We'll use our breathing. Please become aware of your in-breath and your out-breath. What that means is that your awareness comes into the space of your body and you notice how air is moving in and air is moving out. You really won't have to do much because your breath will breathe itself. But as the breath moves in, air is coming into the body and oxygen is being absorbed into the blood. And as breath moves out, the rest of the air, which has not been absorbed, is released back into the atmosphere. Our breathing brings in the air and the oxygen, which had lived in the air around us in in just a moment, a moment before, has now become our blood. It's a very intimate exchange. For each one of us would say, my blood is very me. (laughs) It's very much a me thing. It's like very sacred to the experience of ourselves. And yet, just a moment ago, our blood was made of the air. Let's go further with that interbeing. We've all been in this room for close to an hour together. I'm breathing in your out-breath. You're breathing in my out-breath. We are breathing in each other's breath. Many times over, we are becoming each other through our breathing. There's no way around it. It's already happened. So we use the eyes of interbeing, right? We see how we are interconnected, how our lives are interwoven with the lives of other beings around us just by looking at our breathing. And we can go further for the air in this room, which contains this oxygen, which we so need, which is becoming our blood, has come from the forest. It's come from the trees. The beautiful green blanket that covers the land, all the plant life, producing oxygen. Plants and humans have an incredible symmetry in their breathing, where quite precisely we release what they need and they offer what we need. Every breath in that you take is the out-breath of the forest. Every breath out is the in-breath of the trees. Breathe with the forest. How wonderfully does that change our experience of breathing? It's no longer my breath. We are breathing each other's breaths. We are breathing each other in and out. We are breathing the forest in and out. The sense of connection, the sense of stability that that can bring is beautiful and powerful. Feel that. You belong to this planet. You are a part of this planet. You cannot be taken apart from. You cannot exist apart from. Every breath is testament to that. I love to breathe with the forest. It makes it so that I can go places where there aren't a lot of trees and still feel very well 
Last weekend, I offered a day of mindfulness in New York City on the 20th floor of the Riverside Church steeple, right under the bells. And there were no trees around, <laughs> an intense wind rattling the windows, and a lot of noise and vibration of a big city, and millions and millions of people going about their busyness. Right, and that vibration is really intense. And I live out in the woods. <laughs> I live with thousands of trees around me all the time in New Hampshire. And here I was, way up in the air in a building, practicing. And I practiced to breathe like that. And in that way, I could feel solid. I could still feel so connected and so much a part of my planet. But do you know, we are not only breathing with the forest, we also breathe with other green stuff. It's slimy, sometimes smelly, algae. Algae. Algae on the edges of wetlands and pools in the muck. Slimy stuff, right? That you tend not to want to get your hands into. You'd rather avoid. If you were going swimming and there was a whole bunch of algae in one spot, you're not going to swim there, right? But that algae is also producing just as, much, just as much oxygen for our atmosphere as the forest does. Right? And I only bring that up because I'm going to change the direction of this talk now from what's so nourishing and beautiful and paying attention to conditions of happiness and looking with eyes of interbeing in order to deepen that connection and deepen that sense of stability and well-being. <laughs> But you go through the door of the algae, and now you're something in, you're suddenly in somewhere where you'd rather not be, right? Sitting in a pool of slimy algae, right? So coming face to face to be present to meet with our suffering, with the stuff we usually would prefer not to have. But our practice makes it possible so that we can shape, we can sculpt a special place in ourselves, a special way of holding discomfort, unpleasantness, pain, hardship. Just as that algae produces this oxygen which we so need, it's, it's like a, kind of a compost which nourishes the flowers, the rose. Right? And when you look deeply into something as beautiful as a rose, you have to acknowledge that it needs that nutrient of the compost. Right? When we look into something so wonderful as our breathing in and out, we have to acknowledge that the slimy stuff of the algae is a part of that <sighs> nourishment for our very blood, right? Right in the very heart of us. How is it that we can practice to change our relationship with suffering so that suffering is not something we necessarily want to get rid of, but something that we can work to be present with, to understand and to transform the way that compost can be transformed into a rose. 
the plant of the rose knows just how to reach down into the soil with its many roots and find precisely the right nutrients right? and bring them up to construct, to assimilate into the, the fibers and the tissues of its, of its body, of its, its stem, leaves, and petals. Right? Mm. How can we learn to do that with our suffering? And that's a shift. It's a shift out of a way that we normally operate. Most of us, we really, suffering is unpleasant. You don't want to do it. Right? It's just plain. It's simple like that. And that's natural. Right? Um, but there is a way that we can practice to be present with suffering that helps us not to suffer so much. Thai Thich Nhat Hanh calls this the art of suffering. When you know the art of suffering, you won't suffer as much. But if you don't know the art of suffering, you just suffer. Well, the first piece in the art of suffering is simply to be there with it. To acknowledge that suffering is there and to be there with it, to acknowledge yourself as being there with it. That is to have a relationship with it, to meet it, to be face to face with it, to say, I see you, I see you. And in there, right away, we have the beginnings of some healing, beginnings of some transformation. Before you're aware of your suffering, suffering just happens and you suffer. But when you become aware of suffering, suddenly you have an, a choice. Oh, suffering is happening and I'm aware of it, so now I can choose to do something. Right? I can choose to be overrun by it and then just go wherever it wants to go or I can try to bring something to it. And that's what our practice of mindfulness and meditation encourages us to do. Firstly, it's to see that our anxiety, our fear, the discomfort we have with life is not about something out there. But that anxiety, that fear, that discomfort we're having is right here inside of us. Yes, the situation around us in our society, in our world, in our relationships, might be touching it, might be waking it up, but it's waking it up in us. It's touching it in us, and so it's right here in us that we go to be present with that suffering. So it's not fear out there, but it's coming home to what is in here. There's an image in Buddhist psychology which is quite beautiful and helpful of seeing this inner space that we have like a garden. And, and in this garden, there are all kinds of possibilities, like seeds. A seed is a possibility. It's a potential. So there might be a seed, a possibility in us of feeling uh, uncomfortable, of feeling... Um, disappointment, of feeling restless. All these things are they're kind of on the not-so-pleasant spectrum side, right? There might be a seed there of a stronger unpleasantness, uh, a blaming, a critical, judging mind, that, that an angry mind, uh, uh, um, even a seed of hatred or violence, a possibility of that being inside of us. I think 
all of us know what it's like to be angry to the point of being full of rage and how close you can be in rage to violence, right? An outer expression of violence. Those are possibilities, potentials inside of us, seeds. And if we water those seeds enough, they grow stronger. Just like plants in the garden that are tended well, they grow stronger. And they will be prominent, they will be dominant in the landscape of our heart and mind. But there are also possibilities inside that you might say they're, they're more pleasant or wholesome, like the quality of patience, respect, loving kindness, understanding, compassion, joy, faith, inclusiveness. These sorts of energies inside us, they are possibilities that we could manifest ourselves in that way. And these are seeds that if watered, if tended well inside the garden of our heart, will grow, will become strong and will um, offer us right, what the fruit that they have to offer in our daily life. So how are we taking care of that space inside? So I share that image because when we're talking about being present with our suffering, if we can relate to our suffering as if it is a possibility, a potential, a seed inside of us that has been touched, watered, and has now blossomed, right? How can we take care of that space? We come to it not, uh, not as a victim of what has come up, the suffering that has come up in us, the fear and anxiety that's come up, not as a victim, but as a participant relating to that. I see you, my suffering. I will take you in the arms of my awareness, and I will be with you. I will offer you patience. So we call on another seed. Right? I will offer you respect. I don't want to oppress you or run away from you. I'm going to honor that you are there. I will open a space to accept that you are there. And we can talk this way inwardly to our suffering. Our suffering is like a little child that's crying. It needs something. It's lost. It's hurting. It's uncomfortable, right? It needs care. It needs presence. It needs support. And we come to our suffering inside with that kind of an energy, that kind of a holding and embrace. This is something from uh, Meister Eckhart. All day long, a little burrow labors, sometimes with heavy loads on her back, and sometimes just with worries about things that bother only burrows. And worries, as we know, can be more exhausting than physical labor. Once in a while, a kind monk comes to her stable and brings a pear. But more than that, he looks into the burrow's eyes and he touches her ears. And for a few seconds, the burrow is free and even seems to laugh because love does that. Love frees.
when we practice to come to our suffering, we come in that way. We come with our kindness, with our strength, with our presence. We make ourselves available in that upright, noble, sometimes energetic way where sometimes we really need to take ourselves. <sighs> we have a firm embrace to keep ourselves from exploding. But we wrap ourselves around our suffering with our presence, with our patience, with our kindness. This is so important. And I know there seem to be so many issues out in the world which need our attention, which need our care. Problems, big problems, sufferings, big sufferings that we want to be able to help with. We want to be able to transform. We want to be able to bring relief. But if you do not have relief in your heart, you won't bring that to the world. Again and again, you will see this in your life. You follow that course. Right? We know these expressions, there is no way to peace, peace is the way. There is no way to happiness, happiness is the way. Right? We would like to bring peace, we would like to bring happiness to many people in the world. We can't do that when we are motivated by seeds of uh, frustration and anger, fear and anxiety. The seeds in our consciousness propagate their own species, so to speak. Right? An apple tree doesn't grow oranges. An apple tree produces apples. Our patience and our respect, they don't grow anger. They produce more patience and respect. Our anger doesn't grow peace. It produces more anger and defensiveness. And, right? There's a teaching the Buddha gave called the simile of the cloth summarized something like this. Suppose there was a dyer, someone who dyes cloth, different colors. There's a dyer with a piece of cloth and it's stained and dirty. They dip it in a dye, blue, yellow, red, or pink. It looks poorly dyed and impure in color. Why? Because it was stained and dirty to begin with. So too with the mind. Right? When we are motivated by an unwholesome energy inside, you can expect an unhappy destination. And then classic form of Buddhist scripture, he turns it inside out. Suppose there was a dyer with a piece of cloth that was clean and bright, dipped in a dye, blue, yellow, red, pink. It looks well dyed and pure in color. Why is that? Because it was clean and bright to begin with. And so too with the mind. Right? When you are motivated, by a wholesome energy inside, a happy destination can be expected. Right. Oh, in order to be present with these big stories of suffering that are out in the world, we need first to learn how to be present with the big stories of suffering that are in our own hearts. When we do this, we will discover something really marvelous, that the story of suffering out in the world that we would like to help with so much isn't very far away at all the seeds of discrimination and of hatred and of misunderstanding and miscommunication, oh, they're right here inside too. They just haven't been in the news yet, right? <laughs> and that's why nobody else knows about them. But they're right there. But you ask your good friends and you ask your family members, they'll give you some news about them. Right? Those seeds of suffering are present and they need our care. They need our understanding. So I would like to uh, 
now add to this experience of facing our suffering, treating it as if it were compost rather than garbage, right? Compost to be transformed into roses rather than waste product to get rid of. Coming to it with kindness, presence, and a space for understanding. Now let us add the eyes of interbeing. When we have a seed of suffering in our hearts and we're able to be present with it, to calm it down a little bit so the strong emotion isn't pouring out anymore and now it just aches, it hurts. It's not needing to jump out and spread itself around, but it still hurts. There's still pain there. In that quiet and beautiful embrace that we shape with our breathing and our kind thoughts about patience, acceptance, care. We can ask that seed of suffering, my dear seed of suffering. Is there anything that you need? Is there anything I can bring to you which will help? Is there anything that we can do together to transform this situation? Can I understand where you come from? what you are made of. This is to invite the eyes of interbeing and impermanence. I want to continue to be present with my suffering, but I need to understand how have you come to be? Where are you going? Where have you come from? And when you're able to ask those questions of the suffering in your heart, you will see many things. Just like we look into our breathing, and first we see the air, and our oxygen, the blood, the oxygen in our blood. We see each other. We see the forest as we look with eyes of interbeing. When you look into that seed of suffering in your heart, you see that it's not just this seed of suffering. It has many different sources. It comes from many different places. For example, I can see that the, there is a seed of suffering in me that I know very well where I don't feel good enough. Sometimes I have even felt like a complete failure. Felt like I, uh, I try really hard, but I still manage to make people suffer. <laughs> right? and, and that kind of a, a seed in me has shaped itself into a, a formation that comes up, has come up often over the course of my life. And if I don't take care of it, it pushes me to act in one way or another. It pushes me to spend time with certain people and to avoid time with other people. Right? Those who I am anxious about, who I fear, may bring up that seed of suffering. It's so uncomfortable inside, I don't want to be around them. They are triggers. We can say that, right? Triggers for my suffering. Well, this seed of suffering in me, I know this seed very well. I've done a lot of work holding and getting to know it. But when I sit with it and I embrace it and I can calm it down and acknowledge it and then I ask it, where, where have you come from? I can see so many experiences over the course of my life that have watered this seed, that have tended to it, that have helped it to grow strong. I can see um, my way of thinking about... Uh, 
uh, how well I have performed or done at a certain task and how my thoughts have encouraged. The, the story I tell myself is a story of you're not, you, you messed up there. You could have done better. That wasn't very well. Oh, you idiot. You know, things, all this, this language inside my mind that, that goes over and over again tells a story of how, how much I am a failure. I can see that contributes to the growth of this experience in me. I can see in me, further back in my life, um, being bullied in sixth and seventh grade by my best friend's brother and his friends, right? Literally being pushed around and made to feel small and insignificant, right? But I can also look deeper than that. I can see within myself the continuation of my mother and my father. And I can see in them the same seed, the same fear, and the same suffering, especially in my mom. Yeah. And having looked into this and found that, I've actually had many opportunities to talk deeply with my mother about this transmission that both of us have received and to see how it has come from a long line of human experience. And so the seed of suffering in me is not mine. It's not mine to like hold and to bear and to be the victim of. It's a transmission. It's like a thread in a cloth which has been woven generation to generation. And here I am with an opportunity to contribute to how it's woven in the next step. And will I weave it into more feelings of failure of being less than, of evaluation and judgment of worth? Or will I take it, offer it this space of recognition, of acceptance, and begin to transform it into something else where I can see it doesn't belong to me. I can release it. I can see the non-separation between myself, the experiences in my life that have shaped this, my parents and my ancestors, I can give the story back to the earth and not have to carry it into the next moment. Yeah. I use my eyes of interbeing to open that insight that the seed of suffering does not belong just to me. It belongs to humanity. And in this moment, I am a steward of this particular seed. And I have the opportunity, maybe not to solve its problem, but to contribute to its care and its transformation. And that's enough. It's a wonderful feeling. It's a, that right there is a transformation of the experience. And it's no longer pushing me, but something I can hold. It has become like compost to be transformed into new life. We can do this with any seed inside of us, any suffering that's inside of us, any fear, any anxiety. Ask it once you've got it in your arms. Where do you come from? What are you made of? Look back over the course of your life. And even if you can't find certain experiences and memories that, that have contributed to this with clarity in your mind, it's okay. Just know this seed doesn't belong to me. There's no thing in me which is just me. Everything in me is a continuation, a transformation of my society, my ancestors, so many miraculous conditions coming together. You could offer it back again.
what a relief. In this way, you also open your heart to experience a kind of understanding and spaciousness or inclusiveness for other people's suffering too. So when you see their behavior, and you might initially be inclined to think, I don't like that behavior, (laughs) or that's not good behavior, or that you know, that person is not right up to a certain standard we might be holding. You might be initially inclined to write them off as a messed up, bad kind of a person, right? But when you look deeply like this into your own suffering, you realize the same thing about others. And you have space and the possibility of expressing understanding and compassion for another person's suffering. We are all under the influence of this, these seeds, these uh, stories that have been woven by our ancestors. And some of us are carrying more and some of us are carrying less suffering. And if you happen to see someone who's carrying more, you see it in the way they behave, right? Their outer actions manifest the continuation of that suffering, that story. But if you can touch it in yourself and you know what it's like to hold the roots of your humanity, you can open your heart to another in the same way. And you don't need to discriminate against them, hold them on one side and you on the other anymore. You can see your common roots. Again, in this way, the big stories of suffering in the world are not very far away. In fact, they're inside each one of us today. Today. And we come face to face with that through this practice. There's a particular habit energy which we have evolved in our uh, affluent Western society around the avoidance of suffering. It's a habit energy which has become so commonplace that it's absolutely normal to entertain ourselves all day long in order not to have to feel anything unpleasant. We entertain ourselves with a lot of stuff on our devices nowadays, but we entertain ourselves with tasty food, with comfortable seats. I know that half of you are sitting on comfortable seats and half of you are sitting on uncomfortable seats. And, right, and we, we, will, we will pamper and protect ourselves to some degree, which is fine, but then there's a point at which we are using the comfort that we have acquired in our modern life to cover up to avoid being present with that discomfort that's inside of us. Uh, Anxiety and fear are essentially, when you feel anxious, when you feel afraid of anything, it's essentially you're saying something's wrong, right? At a basic level, something's wrong. According, it may not be wrong, but we, we perceive it as wrong, right? Something's wrong. And... Maybe, maybe even unacceptable. Right. It's also anxiety and fear are a natural response to stress, any kind of stress. Anytime you feel a pull between two things, there's, a, there's, the, uh, there's space for a little bit of anxiety and potentially fear. 
to arise. What's going to happen? Right? What if? What if? Like when, uh, when uh, a year and a half ago, when we had this election, right? There was a tremendous surge of anxiety in the collective consciousness, not just in this country, it was around the world actually, but especially in this country, um, because there was this huge unknown. What if? What does this mean? Right? Suddenly, like the carpet's been pulled out from underneath you, and you, you don't have your feet on the ground, and you don't know. And the sense is something's wrong, right? And that's a space, that's the energy that anxiety comes into. And fear can be born out of that. Uh, especially if we hone in on a particular thing. This is really wrong, right? This is not okay. Right? Fear comes up. It's important when we're coming home to ourselves that we recognize that we are contributing to that, that that anxiety, that fear is living in us. The situation outside us is what it is, but our reaction inside is to grab on and say, this is okay, this is not okay, right? And if we say it's not okay and something is wrong, it's likely we will start to feel anxious. Uh, It's as simple as like stage fright, you know? You're about to go out on the stage to, to offer your lines in the performance of a play or something like that, right? You're about to step out there and suddenly you have the thought, what if I mess up? What if I forget my line? What's my cue? And suddenly anxiety fills you, this what if. You haven't even gotten out on stage yet, right? <laughs> but, but that's what happens. That way of reacting to the situation you're in produces the anxiety inside of you. It's not actually a scary thing to go on a stage and speak lines, right? We make the anxiety out of how we perceive the situation. Mm. So we perceive stress, and the natural response is that, that fear, that anxiety. And yes, it is unpleasant. And so it's quite natural we want to not have it. And so we spend a lot of time and energy as a society covering it up doing everything we can to, to, to comfort ourselves from that possibility. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing in many cases. It's not, it's not a bad thing to, to want to uh, not have to feel the anxiety. But it's important to understand when it is that we are covering it up and to know also whether we have the capacity to alleviate it without having to consume and cover it up. So I just I want to bring this out today because for me it's become very important in the last couple of years to protect my well-being because of the amount of collective stress and anxiety that's present in our society right now. The disparity of views, not the despair of views, but the disparity in views, right? And the, the challenges that we face social justice challenges, climate challenges, and political and economic challenges, and the diversity of ways in which people are coming at this, there's a lot going on. And that is stressful to try to take that all in. And I have to protect myself. I don't know about you, but I have to protect myself from too much information. (coughs) Because I can be easily overwhelmed and then feel anxious. And once I feel anxious, 
I act from the place of my anxiety, not from the place of my, my wisdom and my sense of being at home and connected and a part of life. Now I come from the fear inside, right? And I produce more of that. The foods that we eat can con- contribute a lot. We have to watch. We have to watch our diets, and that's this is already a big practice in our society, even without uh, mindfulness around. But to be to be more and more conscious of the effect of what it is to bring foods into our body, it affects us. So we need to understand what that what that effect is, and to gauge whether it's helpful or not to eat in a certain way. sense impressions, what we see is a kind of consuming and seed watering in our hearts. What you see, the images you see, the smiles on people's faces, the pain that you witness, the suffering you witness, what you hear, smell and taste, what you feel with your body, touch. All of this is input coming into this, uh, what we call sense impressions, coming into, into the space of our, our consciousness and feeding, nourishing certain seeds in us. So we learn to practice to be like a sentinel, kind of someone who's going to keep watch over these thresholds, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and body. We're going to stand there with our mindfulness and pay attention when I take these things, these sense impressions in, what effect does it have on me? And as you learn about that, decide with uprightness and with clarity how much of it is nourishing you and when to say, okay, enough. I need to protect myself because if I take in any more, I'm going to be overwhelmed by that. And I don't want to be overwhelmed. I want to be fresh and capable. Right? Hmm. So the media is a huge, a huge role in all this these days. What we see, what we hear, what we are digesting through, uh, especially news media. Do you remember, I think most of you here can remember this easily, when the news cycle was morning news and evening news, right? There were two times when you got news in the day. Now it's every 10 minutes. Right? There's an update on there's a 24 hour news cycle happening, and every few minutes the same posts will be updated, new photographs, new information added, and so on and so on. And if you get caught in that, you're just constantly drawn into these evolving, very important stories. Well, the reality is they're not news. We all know that. They're not new. It's not news. It doesn't take a whole lot of information to be aware of what's going on in a particular situation. But all this is happening. We add this little bit, add this little bit, sensationalized and made so dramatic and intense that it seems so important we get sucked in. But the truth of the story is most of what we're hearing is opinions, perspectives, people offering what they think about that situation. It's not the situation you're learning about. It's what somebody thinks about it or someone's perception of it, right? Most of the time. There are very few sources that you can find, little bits and pieces here and there. 
where you're actually connecting with the story as it, as it truly is. Right? So when we practice, we come back to our body, we come back to our consciousness, we post the sense, sentinel of mindfulness at our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and body, and we, we, we begin to sense more intimately in the sense of closer to reality what's actually happening. Right? And we protect that space. We don't have to get caught in the, the division between right and left or better and worse or up or down, right? And instead, hold the space where we can discern deeply whether there is suffering that needs to be cared for or seeds of joy that could be watered or seeds of understanding, maybe an experience of interbeing and interconnectedness which could be nourished. The last area of consuming, right, protecting our health and well-being by being aware of what's coming in that I want to draw awareness to is uh, the way in which we consume our own thinking. We consume our own perspectives, views, Each time that we shape a thought, it waters seeds in our consciousness. It also waters seeds in the consciousness of those around us, even if we don't say it. You know, you have a very poor view of someone, and you don't say it, but you're in the same room as them. Do you think they don't know it? It shows somehow, right? It's it's part of your relationship. It's there, right? What goes on inside our own minds is not hidden from the world. It's a part of the world. It's a very important part of the world. It's the beginnings of our action and our activity. It's out of our thoughts and our intentions that our words and our listening arise, that our relationship, our livelihood, and everything is expressed from deep inside. And so paying attention to our thinking and giving it also that kind embrace. I see you there judgmental, critical mind, discriminative mind, evaluative mind. I see you there, and I give you this space, this recognition. All right, I'm not trying to get rid of you. I'm just acknowledging that you're there. That part of me is there. And you see, when you're doing this, you're no longer just your critical mind. You're also your mindfulness. You are able to be present with. You You have that meta perspective of holding that space of your critical, judgmental, evaluative mind. And then you can invite your mind onto a new path instead of worrying about failure or success, right? Instead to maybe contemplate uh, deeper connections and truths, look with eyes of interbeing and invite your mind to move in a new direction. To, to train your mind to speak inwardly with kindness and inclusiveness rather than that critique and that judgment. It's so important because this is what we consume constantly. You might eat a few times a day and that affects you. You might tune in with media a few times a day and that affects you. You might talk to friends here and there and that affects you. But you're thinking all day long. Right? Constantly, 
producing something inside. What is happening there? Right? And thus the role of mindfulness and meditation becomes extremely important in, um, in determining the quality of our inner life. Understanding that comes about through our practice can be incredibly powerful. Like when we contemplate the breathing, right? And we look with interbeing eyes and suddenly we're breathing with the forest and with the whole planet. How that changes your breath. How that changes your experience of well-being and connection. How that brings you solidity, stability, and calm. You make a space through your practice for insight to arise. Like when we look into the roots of a strong emotion, where have you come from? Like I told you about my experience of feeling like a failure. And I can look and I can see these threads reaching back throughout my life into my ancestors' lives. And that spaciousness that arises, I make space for that understanding to emerge by the way that I hold my suffering tenderly in my mindfulness, the way I look deeply with eyes of interbeing, I make space for that insight to arise and to feed me, to free me from the burden of the suffering. It's like when you plant a seed. You press the little hole into the soil. You take the seed, you place the seed in that hole. You gently cover it up. You put your hand on it and send it a good wish. You water it. You make sure it has sun and warmth and moisture enough. And then one day, it's so full of the possibility of life that it bursts open. A root, a shoot, and the plant grows. Right? That's like your insight. You create all the conditions for your understanding to emerge like that. The way that we breathe and come home to ourselves, the way that we take care with inclusiveness, the suffering inside, the way that we water seeds of joy. We create these spaces in us where looking with eyes of interbeing can wake up that insight, just like that seed bursts open. A year and a half ago, no, no, it's really almost two years ago, my daughter, who is now 10, <clears throat> her name is Sariana. Please don't ever tell you that I'm, tell her that I'm telling you this. Um, <laughs> she feels self-conscious of it, but she also understands its importance. She and I were having a tough time. It was very easy for her to get into a rage about things. And part of the reason was because I would react to her discomfort with things. There's a part of me that learned how to be a parent without learning anything. I, it was just a transmission I got. Having the child, I suddenly was acting in a way that I never thought I would act. Um, and things are just coming out. And like I, she, would, she would react with so much upset to certain situations 
that I felt it was disrespectful. It would just come up in me, like that's, it was like, that's not appropriate. And then she, the way she would react to her sister or to her brother or to her mother or to me, I'd be like, no, that is, that is not acceptable behavior, would be the, the, the energy which would come up in me. You know? And I am her parent. I'm supposed to guide her. She needs to know that this is not acceptable. Right? And so this reaction comes out of me to meet suffering which is emerging in her. Now, I'm not paying attention in a subtle, careful way to what's going on in her. I'm only seeing the outer fire that she expresses. And Saryana is very strong. Um, and if I am to engage her in an emotional struggle, she will win. Uh, and we learned this at that time. <clears throat> but she doesn't win happily. She wins because she, she escalates. And at a certain point, I can't. Um, but it, it's so much suffering for her to go that route. But it, to have the same, we share the same seed of escalation, right? We've both received that, and we feed each other. <clears throat> so it was becoming an issue, a problem, and I, I didn't know what to do on the spot. And so I practiced to stop. I said, okay. Let me take a break here. And I really practiced to come home to myself and to find the place in me which was so upset. Part of it was angry, but also upset and hurt and like really like, I don't know what to do, right? I'm supposed to, right? She's already 10 years old and I'm her dad, right? I'm so I should, you know, like I have that part of me which is supposed to succeed and doesn't want to be a failure, right? All this coming together around my parenting of my daughter and I felt horrible inside, so I just went to that place. And like I described, taking care of strong emotions, I, I just breathed with that. I made myself present. I offered myself the recognition that, yeah, I'm here with myself, and I don't know, but I will continue to breathe, to hold. And I calmed down that space inside. And I asked, dear, kind of like a dear relationship with Sariana, that space in me, what, what, can, what can I do? What, what can we do together? And I saw right away, oh, I should apply the practice. I should look deeply. I should look with eyes of interbeing and impermanence. I should discover in me you know, something larger than this seed to hold it with. And so I went to Sariana that night while she was just after she'd gotten into bed and was going to go to sleep, and I laid down on the bed next to her. And uh, I asked her if she would think about some things with me. She said yes. And I said, well, can you tell me, what are you made of? So I just went right to like, I'm going to look with eyes of interbeing. Right? I'm going I'm to engage her in the practice. Let's find some connection. Let's find something deeper than this stuff on the surface I, I'm lost in. I want to go deeper. I want to establish some new ground. And she said, what do you mean, Dad? I said, well, you know, like, remember when we go on retreats? Sometimes we, you do that. Uh, in the children's program, you might do this 
activity of making cookies and you look deeply into the cookies and you see all the things that are in the cookies like the sun and the soil and and the sun sh uh, and 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 all the different ingredients and kind of like that like what are you made of and she's like okay dinner <laughs> i said okay great <laughs> i said great and i just laid there and i contemplated that I let that sit. I brought that into that same heart space that I was holding my, my anguish, really, was what I was feeling. My anguish over how to be with my daughter and how to meet this difficulty we were experiencing together. I brought it into that same space. She's made of dinner. And right away, I'm made of dinner, too. <laughs> Okay, I didn't say that. I just left that there inside. I said, what else? And we went on for three or four more rounds where she thought for a moment and offered a thought about what she was made of. And I took it in. And it's just a few minutes, right? But after a few minutes, we both started... I started to notice how close we were, first of all. We both started to feel really happy and connected. And then we talked about how all these things were in both of us and how we could really find we were made of the same world, really. And then we went to bed. The next night I did the same thing. And the next night, a couple more times that week, I did the same exercise. I wanted to build up that experience of being really deeply connected and sharing my life with her. And, having that be a prominent seed in my consciousness, right? And then one evening, I'm at the sink doing dishes, and I look over. We have kind of an open concept downstairs space. I look over, and Sariana and her little sister are escalating into a nasty argument. And they can, have, they can be really rough on each other. And Sariana is a lot bigger and smarter and quicker and so she I, I have this reaction of me that is like that is absolutely not okay right that's not allowed I'm just going to charge in there and go no right <laughs> my children do not fight like this right and that's the part of me that wanted to jump out and I mean but that's why I'm practicing not to do that I'm practicing not to not to react with so much of an escalation what do we do? And what comes to my mind is what we did at night. And so I just called out to Sariana as they're, they're starting to really go at it with each other. And I said, Sariana. She's like, what? I'm like, what are you made of? <laughs> and she heard it. And she took a breath. She stepped back. And she just went to go play something else. She just completely let go of the escalation. Because when we were doing that at night, we were connecting with each other in a very deep way. And a deep need in Sariana was being met. Me too. Right? But in her, this deep need for safety, for well-being, for recognition and connection was being built through that little guided meditation that we did. Right? Looking deeply together, contemplating together our shared elements in the world. And 
And in that way, we felt so connected and safe and close. And when I threw those words out to her across the room, those words just touched that experience which had been built in her too. And immediately she felt well. The seed was watered. It sprang up. And she no longer had to act out her anguish, right, which was coming out in that moment with her sister. She just could, right, let it go. She's fine. There was no need to pursue that in her. I didn't have to say anything else. I just said, what are you made of? And it touched that seed in her, and she woke up with it. We did it again. A little bit later, we, I did the same thing, and it worked also. But the third time, <laughs> she stopped and she looked at me and she said, Dad, when are you going to stop telling me that? Right? <laughs> so we've had to find new way, <laughs> several new layers of ways to continue to connect. But it has been a really beautiful process of, of using, using our, our deeper wisdom of non-discrimination and non-separation to to find that safety, that security, that sense of, I am a part of life, I am at home in life, and that's good, and use that as a base. Right? So I witnessed that also. I uh, want to close by telling you the story of in Plum Village, when I was a monastic, I was part of a, a circle that held a deep listening retreat for Israelis and Palestinians. And so a group of Israelis and Palestinians traveled to France and spent two weeks practicing. The first week of, was really just to get familiar with Plum Village. And the second week is a deep listening circle, which just goes on and on and on, several hours in the morning, several hours in the afternoon, in which stories are shared and told. There's no discussion or processing. It's just a time to listen. So you have a circle of maybe 15 people, half of them Israeli, half of them Palestinian, and then six or seven monks and nuns scattered through it to be space holders, to really be the anchors of deep listening practice. And people are invited one by one, slowly, in whatever capacity they have at that moment, to speak a little of their life, their experience, particular formative moment for them or their family or memories or things they've inherited through their families' experiences, and stories of very beautiful and amazing things come out, stories of intense suffering and violence and a legacy of hatred, right, are shared. But the space is just one of listening. It's one of presence. It's one of inclusiveness where one's joy is welcome, where one's sorrow is welcome, where one's anger is welcome, where one's uh, insight is welcome. And it's a space of compassion that's created like that. And out of that, making that space, insight arises. And the insight that I witnessed that arose out of that circle was When I hear you tell your story about your suffering, I realize that I have a very similar suffering. 
when I hear you speak about the beauty and the value of your culture, your people, your ways, I feel also inspired and enlivened and feel so similarly about the beauty and the culture of my people and my ways. I see that we are not so different after all. Right? So suddenly you start dropping beneath the surface of you're on one side, I'm on one side. We're really enemies in some sense. But you drop beneath the surface and you see a seed of suffering that needs care, a seed of joy which can be beautifully expressed. And you can connect with that as a human being, not as an Israeli or a Palestinian on one side or the other, but as human beings who share this difficult moment together. And reconciliation becomes possible. I, I witnessed men and women walk out of those circles arm in arm and say, I didn't think this was possible because I always thought of you as the enemy. But now you're like my brother. You're my sister. Deep, powerful medicine in the practice. The practice of non-discrimination, non-separation, just from deep listening, just from being there and creating the right conditions for that insight to arise. And those people go back, and they're changed forever. Right? And they become beacons of, of hope and transformation for others. And it's not easy. Right? It's not easy. And it's an old, old story of suffering, and it'll take a long, long time for transformation and healing. But it showed me in that moment that it's possible. Yeah. Those brave people, right? They took, undertook a noble effort to meet each other and to meet themselves in that space and to really hold it with practice and to look deeply and water that seed of the common struggle and joy of humanity. Mm. Beautiful. Capable of the universe are your arms when they move with love. And I know it is true that your feet are never more alive than when they are in defense of a good cause. I want to fund your efforts. Stay near beauty, for she will always strengthen you. She will bring your mouth close to hers and breathe, inspire you the way light does the fields. The earth inhales God. Why should we not do the same? This sacred flame we tend inside, it needs the chance of every tongue, the communion with all. As capable as God are we. Kepax University. Stay in your beauty, 
or she will always strengthen you. Hmm, I like that. It's Thomas Aquinas. Thank you, dear friends, for being here tonight. I hope that it's been nourishing to some extent. Um, I would like to, I don't know, what time are we at? Is it time to close? Can we sing a song? No. <laughs> there is some more. There's more, more publicized time. Yeah, if, if, you, if you would like to join me in singing a song, if you don't know the words to this song, you can sing with your hands. <clears throat> this is breathing in, breathing out. Breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out. I am blooming as a flower, I am fresh as a dew, I am solid as a mountain, I am firm as the earth, I am free, breathing in, breathing Reflecting what is real, what is true, and I feel there is space deep inside of me. I am free, I am free, I am free. Let's sing it one more time. Breathing in, breathing out. Breathing in, breathing out. I'm blooming as a flower. I am blooming as a flower as the dew. I am fresh as the dew, solid as a mountain. I am solid as a mountain, firm as the earth. I am firm as the earth. I am free. I am
Deep inside of me, I am free, I am free, I am free. (laughs) Thank you. Once again, we do have our donation box.